This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Hey, it's Glenn, and I want to remind you, peace of mind is tough to come by these days unless you have a Liberty Safe. With a Liberty Safe, you won't worry when you leave the house because you'll know your valuables are protected. And right now, you can get free delivery to your home on any Liberty Safe. Go to LibertySafe.com for factory direct pricing. LibertySafe.com, made in the USA, lifetime warranty, and peace of mind. LibertySafe.com. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Uh, I want to get right to our, our guest here, because you're going to want to hear much more from him than, uh, than me. So I uh, emceed an event for a local charity here in San Diego called Solutions for Change. and um, It's a program where they end family homelessness by teaching... Uh, uh, formerly homeless people, how to work and wake up and go to work and earn money and get back on their feet. Wonderful, wonderful group. And Taya Kyle was the main speaker. She, he, she of course, is the wife of Chris Kipe, uh, Kyle, uh, American Sniper. The other speaker was Clint Bruce. I've never heard of this man before, but I'll tell you, I, I, I don't know if I've ever heard a man command a crowd and have such a, a presence and depth and wisdom. His name's Clint Bruce. Former Navy SEAL, former pro football player, and he uh, leads an organization called Carry the Load and had the honor of uh, spending a few minutes with Clint the other day, and uh, this was our conversation. I'm doing well. I, that's a generous introduction. I, I appreciate it. Just, it, uh, it well, and that was such an amazing event to be a part of. I mean, it's easy to find words to champion a cause like that, and, and, uh, and, and men like Megason and, and the team that have come around Solutions for Change. I mean, who, who, who doesn't want to be a part of something like no, that? I'm so glad you were. Can I, can I say something that I saw um, at that event? I saw it at you. Sure. Um, you, so you're a warrior, right? Navy SEAL, all the rest. A f- pro football player, right? A brute, one would say. Right? You know I mean like a big guy? Right, but Bruce, Bruce probably, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I, I, I think that's fair. I, I'm certainly no... Uh, uh, calendar boy. For sure. <laughs> but what I saw was a gentleman. I saw a man who walked Taya Kyle up to the stage, um, you know, holding her hand up to the stage. I, I saw a man who uh, stood on the back of the stage uh, in, a, in a protecting posture. Um, I saw a man who held her, opened up, pulled out her chair for her uh, the entire time. Um, I saw it and I, I valued that. And I'll also tell you, I had another Navy SEAL who was, I was standing in line with to get my car. Um, at the valet, and he walked around the car and opened up the car for my wife. W- speak on that, right, on, on what it means to be a warrior in the fullest sense. You know, I, I don't think you can be a warrior w- w- selectively. I, I, don't, I don't think, um, you know, I think there's an element of tenderness that comes with the word warrior, and I, and I think when you're incomplete in that, when you don't have the ability to kind of uh, use that hardened hand for gentle actions, um, th- then you're mm-hmm. incomplete. And so that's just kind of the way I was raised. I was I was raised um, in a uh, in a in an environment where that was the expectation. The expectation is that you cultivate strength in order to serve those around you, and that service can be gentle. That service can be hard at times. That service becomes that strength is deployed in whatever the situation um, you know requires, and to be able to move fluidly along those lines of service and those demonstrations of. Uh, Hey, you're more important than me. Let, let me let me help you however I can. I mean that that's the real application and deployment of strength. And, and you know we use that word meekness. Meekness is um, it's not weak or they'd say weak, but meekness is power under control. And 
you know, you look at the the, the, the person of Christ and, and, and now that power was under control. And, and I've just tried to live that out. I've had that model for me um, as, as an athlete and as an operator in the community. I mean, men like Admiral McRaven, who is every bit the Southern gentleman that you think he is and, and more. Um, some of the, I guarantee I know exactly who that was that opened the door for your, for your bride. Um, <laughs> I, I just got to be around those guys and, and, and learn from them and, and try to earn the right to lead them. And that's what they showed me. I love that line. Heart, you say heart and hand for gentle action. Gosh, that's good. Uh, well, okay. Well, let's go with yours. I said hardened hand, but used for actions. But I like. I mean, heart, heart and hand. Heart and that hand. works really well. Wow. Okay. So wait, what, what did you say? You, you said know, hardened. I mean. Like you, you have this really calloused hand. Like I, I grew up uh, on a ranch in the summers with my with my family, and and my uncle JC, who's just the epitome of masculinity, doesn't say much, and he had these these calloused hands that were just thick and strong and, and, and worn, but I watched him use those hardened hands for such gentle actions, like picking up my, my sister and my brother when we fell, opening the door for my aunt. I mean, just, and so that picture for me is, is yeah, your hands are hard and they're strong, but what are you using them for? Um, and I, and that was just such a, that's a picture I grew up with and it's, and it's, and it's kind of something that sticks with it as one of my core values. Sure. So what does it take? What what values? What virtues does it take to become someone in the special forces? And and then the, the the part B of that is which of those values or virtues did you not have that you needed to cultivate and work at the most to be a complete man? Yeah, so I think in the special operations community in the whole, and, and, and largely just in service, you know, in service. I mean, I think a lot of times we fixate a lot on the special operations community. Um, I would tell you, your straight leg infantry, quote unquote, knuckle dragger. Um, has every bit the uh, warrior ethos, intellect, and all these other things that we get celebrated for in the special operations community. I think um, our our programs and process um, uh, make us use those more, maybe sometimes, especially in the crucible of training. So for me, it was it was just that that, that I said this at the event. You know, T. E. Lawrence, Lawrence from Arabia, he said an opinion can be argued with, but a conviction is best shot. And I love that. And, and, and for me, what that means is, you know, opinions cost nothing, but conviction could cost a lot. And conviction always produces action. And for me to have to remember why I started to do the hard thing and have resilience and, and have that conviction of, hey, I know why I'm here. It's a difference between having a hard day and a bad day. If, if, if you have a hard day, which if you're trying to do hard things, you're going to have a hard day and you can't remember why you're doing the hard thing. You just had a bad day. But if you're doing a hard thing and you have a hard day and you remember why you started doing it in the first place, then it's just a hard day and you can deal with that and you can move past that because hard things are hard. And I, and I think for me, you know, SEAL training and, 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 and academically at the Naval Academy, it was, it, was a, it was a challenging place for me. But that desire to kind of let my yes be my yes and, and, and remember why I was trying to do the hard things and who I was trying to honor with my efforts, like these people who had invested in me. This I don't have a dad. My dad died when I was young. So I had just all these men, coaches and, and leaders and my friends' fathers who just poured into me and just wanted to be worth that time and to be a worthwhile investment of of, of their time. But those are the things that um, are easy to think about when you're in pain. And when you think about those things while you're in pain, the pain passes. And it's like that lifeline to who you said you wanted to be. And just you know, resilience and, and conviction were two of the virtues that, that I just, um, you know, I clung to uh, during during those days. I love that. I love the conviction. Why, why did you do the hard thing? 
Well, I, you know, I, I think um, I think most of us are, are are the right side of an equal sign. Like if we take a real hard look at our lives and we look at where we are now as a product of this person plus this opportunity plus this action plus plus this person, then we see ourselves as a as, as, as certainly. And we're in that mix. You're like you're not accidentally a team guy. You don't. You, no one makes it through hell week, but you. You got to make it through on your own. So you're part of where you are right now. But there's a bunch of people that poured into you, and 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 for me to stay connected to that and and to realize that and to, in some ways, be duty bound uh, to that investment in me mm. is has always been a very big deal. It's always been something that's very important to me. Wow, and I've never heard this. I love this visual. An appreciation for everyone on the everyone and everything on the left side of the equal side. Yeah, and that's about as complex as I get as a math problem. It's, <laughs> it's the left side and then the right side, and it's this plus this plus this. You don't, you don't find letters in any math equation that I write. But, but 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 at the end of the day, we are just kind of an individual. We're math problems, and that's why I love solutions for change so much. Because solutions for change is looking at people who may not have as much as they they wish they had or deserved or, or should have on the left side of that equal mm, sign, yeah. and they're jumping on that side of the paper and going, "Hey, let us provision for you." the things that you you didn't get for whatever reason you didn't get it so that we can make this right side of an equal sign what would what, what you deserve and what your community deserves from be. you really good really good talking with clint bruce uh former uh, uh special forces officer navy grad pro football player as well which we'll get to uh and his group is called carry the load which we'll obviously talk about as well um you mentioned your dad tell us about your dad clint yeah my dad was great he, he was he was you know i had him for a little while and you know i have friends that have Still had their dads, and, and and that just wasn't a relationship that, that poured into them. And I've have, I have friends that never had a dad, a dad. so I'm you know I, I consider myself lucky to have had a father for a while, and I've had a great one. And and you know he was just this larger than life personality. You know my dad he used to say this stuff to me all the time. And it's funny as we get older and, and we become fathers ourselves, you tend to remember stuff that your father said when like when he was telling it to you when you were a teenager. I was like, wait, I'm a starting linebacker on a high school football team, old man. Like, what do you have to offer me? <laughs> and now I'm just like, that was like, man, I wish I'd have taken notes. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, my dad used to say that son, there's two kinds of people in the world, but it would change every time. Yeah, so- <laughs> like, my dad was really wise, but he wasn't very good at math. But he was bigger than me, so I didn't say anything. And he used to say, son, there's two kinds of men in the world. There's men that walk in a room and say, here I am. And there's men that walk in a room and say, there you are. And I want you to be a there you are kind of man. Because they didn't need to know someone's been looking for you. And, you know, and, and, whoa, 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 wait, what, was, what was the second half of that? There, what, explain that there so, you are. There's, there's men that walk in a room and say, here I am. And there's men that walk in a room and say, there you are. And I want you to be a there you are kind of man. Because it didn't need to know someone's been looking for you. And just think about that. When, you, when you're in a room and someone comes in and goes, hey, man, there you are. And, and they've just been looking for you because they, they, won't, they know you and, and you're a part of their world. And just what that does to a person to know that someone's been looking for them, it, it just it just makes you know that you're worth it, all these other things. And so, you know, he was the kind of man that lived that out. He was the kind of man, a big man, had a, had a kind of a, a real presence to him. And I would watch him time and time again use that presence to elevate someone around him. Mm. Like he was not in the room for him. He was in the room to come alongside someone to encourage him to to, to appropriately challenge him, but but say, hey, I'm going to challenge you, but I'm going to be right here. So when you hit that hard thing, you're going to turn around, I'm going to be right here. And I watched him be so purposeful with his presence. Um, even when he was in the hospital, you know, he, you almost had to step back and, and force yourself to acknowledge that his physicality was reducing because he was so sick. I mean, when we went in the hospital, he's a big guy. And, you know, when he, when he passed away, I could, I could carry him in one arm and it, but but his presence was such that his presence was complemented by his purpose. 
And because his presence and purpose were so equally yoked, his physicality it never you lost awareness of it. Mm. And, and that was just the kind of man he was. And, awesome. and it was and it was fun to see that um, in motion. And so just trying to keep up with that and, and trying to, um, you know, uh, share what I, what I was blessed with, even though I don't have it anymore. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the why that drives me every day. Great. Well, now you're raising three daughters. So I am. what in the world and how, how, what's your goal here? What's your goal with these three girls? Uh, yeah. I, is, for me, it's pretty simple. I try to keep these really high, kind of, I call them the high whys. You know, your high whys, why you exist is what they say about you when you're gone, and your, and your big whys, why you use your time, talent, and treasure the way you use it. And and for me, my high why is pretty simple. I, you know, I got these three little girls, and all I want to be is the kind of guy they want to marry someday. That's it. I just want to be a man worth my girls. Who I am, what I do, who I do it with, what I do it for. If if my girls come home with a man like me, I better be okay with it because that's what I showed them. You know, and that, <laughs> that man's going to be four things. He's going to be purposeful. He's going to be passionate. He's going to be protective, or, and he's going to be a provider. And if he and if he's not those four things, I, I'm not going to have to scare him off because you know my girls aren't going to want him. And if he is those four things, I'm I'm still going to scare him off, man. It's my, <laughs> that's my girls. You're gonna. We have a pit in the back, two man enter, one man leave. I mean, he's gonna have to earn it. Uh, but he's gonna be those four things and, and I just wanna I just wanna live that out. I want him to come home uh with a man like their daddy and and, and I just you know, that's my mission. That's that's why I exist. That's why I do a lot of what I do. I wanna be a how about the there's so many lines here that we're gonna write down. I wanna be a man worth my girls. How about that? That's it. <sighs> I mean I, I just good, wanna be man. the guy my girls wanna marry one day. That's it. And and who I have around me, if my girls come home with some of the guys that I have around me, I, I better be okay with it. My my being around them, my being in their presence is is this tacit endorsement of who they are. So I don't I don't waste my time. I, I can't. I don't know how much I have left. I, I didn't know I'd have what I have now. So I'm not gonna waste my time. I'm not gonna be involved in organizations that aren't doing the work and, and I see so many people say they want to say they want to fix problems, and then you see you know, Chris Megason and Solutions for Change over there, and they're just getting at it. They're just doing the work. And, and what I love doing is come alongside leaders like him and organizations mm-hmm. like that and, and doing anything I can to allow them to do the work. Because you know, the highest and best use of a leader is, is to do the work. And so when you find good leaders, you, you resource them and try to help them do the work. And whatever you can do to do that, that's your job. Clint Bruce right here, uh, Special Forces guy, uh, Navy grad, pro football player. Uh, Clint, you're a busy man. Can you stick around for a couple more minutes, sir? I can. I love, can, absolutely. I'd love to chat about uh, Carry the Load, one of his organizations, uh, and we can support him. We've got this coming up next, one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. I just want to spend a few more minutes here with Clint Bruce, former pro football player and uh, Navy SEAL as well. His mission statement, uh, four Ps, purposeful, passionate, protector, and provider. And here I uh, asked Clint um, how we all yearn for a purpose, but uh, easier said than done, how do you find it? 
You know, I, I think I think sometimes when we say find your purpose, I think we automatically associate that with our profession. And when we do that, I think sometimes a great profession become a casualty of that thinking. Now, your passion and your profession can sometimes align, but sometimes they don't. And if they don't and you don't love what you do, if you take a second and look at what does what you do help you pursue your passion, then, then, it's, then, then you'll learn that you don't hate what you do as much as you think you did because it facilitates and it equips and it resources a passion that you now get to pursue. And so your, your, your purpose doesn't always have to be what you do. Mm. Um, and I think sometimes we vilify what we do because it's, it's not our purpose. But if your profession facilitates what you do, if you can spend more time with your kids because you've got a job that allows you to do that, if, if you can take off on the weekend and, and if you can invest in a group like Solutions for Change or you have time or you have resources, or you have talent, that's been cultivated by your profession and steer that towards your purpose and your passion, then, then a profession fits probably where it should be, honestly. Yeah. And so I think just if it's easy to talk about something and it's easy to get passionate about something, your, your purpose probably isn't too far from that. And then finding a way to pursue that incrementally or completely, you know, and what I tell you is you're never your own purpose. I mean, that's the biggest thing that you learn when you go through SEAL training and Marine Corps. Like if you're worried about you, you're not going to make it. But if you can take your mind off of you and focus on someone else who's next to you who's probably cold or probably hurting a little more than you, and you can help them, your mind gets off itself. The military does a great job of beating you out of you, so now you're useful. And, you know, when you can get out of your own way, you can you can do a whole lot. And if you're your purpose, then have fun with that. But we're not going to be friends. I don't have time for you. <laughs> um, I just got an email from uh, Sue Ellen who said, there's too much stuff here. I I need I I can't I can't write it all down fast enough. Um, you're a brilliant man, Bruce and um, or, uh, Clint, and and I just I want to spend more time with you, man. I, I hope we can uh, continue to chat. And and I'm only leaving yeah, you here with you. I, I absolutely love to. I'm only leaving you here with 60 seconds to talk about carry the load, but I do that because I know we'll have other opportunities to do it in the future. But give us the short of carry the load. So let me, if, you know, carry load is our way to answer this question really well. Do you want to remember the sacrifices that law enforcement, firefighters, EMTs, and paramedics and military have made? Do you want to have a great answer to the question, hey, were you worth my sacrifice? And that's what they're asking us on the other side of glory is, hey, were you worth my sacrifice? And carry the load is a way for us to begin to answer that question well. And uh, if you go to our Facebook page and learn more about it, you know, San Diego, we're excited about coming towards you this year and uh, would love to come back on and talk more about that. But the bottom line is there are people that sacrifice every day for us in uniform, police, firefighters, EMT, paramedics, and, of course, United States military. And the ultimate proposition is I hope they're worth it. And, and, and we got to be worth it. I mean, that's our that's our deal. We just got to be worth it. One, um, one and, thing that, and that's one of the ways we do that. One thing that really hit me in your speech at Solutions for Change is when people come up to you and say, thank you for your service, what do you say back to them? I say you're worth it. Uh, you're worth it. And, and so be worth it. I mean, I'm, not, I'm a civilian now. There's, there's young men and women that are going overseas, and, and uh, you know, I, I'm going to be worth it. And, and, and how I love my family, how I impact my community, the things I do in my workplace, I'm just going to be worth it. And so for me, it's an acknowledgement that, hey, you were worth my sacrifice. I thought about you every day, and I didn't even know you, and I bet that you were worth it. And when I sit here and I look at you now, I know that you were. So let's just be worth it together today. And, and that's a pretty – that's a pretty simple but absolute way to look at things is, hey, was I, am I worth it? Clint, Bruce, carry the load. Look him up on Facebook, and uh, we'll chat again. Clint, pleasure, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. So much, so much, so much goodness there. I, I wrote us all, the, all these notes down here. We'll, we'll go over them coming up next. I also want to talk about 
the third option. People are fragile. Some people are fragile. Some people are resilient. But not even that's good enough. We need a third option. Clint Bruce spoke about it. Or lives it. Talk about it next. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Amazing is Clinton Bruce. I wrote down some stuff here. Hardened hand for gentle action. Love that. Uh, we are the right side of the equal sign. So the thing on the left is uh, different people, different opportunities, different actions, and then the equal sign, and that equals who I am. Uh, you have to live your. That's Clinton talking. You have to live up to that. Uh, I love this. His dad always said, there's two types of people. Here I, People who walk into a room and say, here I am. And people who walk into a room and say, there you are. And he said his dad would use his presence to elevate and encourage someone else. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Oh, this, this is our favorite part. Everyone, we were chatting in the studio. Uh, I want to be a man worth my girls. Who I am, what I do, who I do it with, and who I do it for. That's all for my girls. If, if my girls come home with a man like me, I better be okay with it. And then uh, he said, you are never your own purpose. And the military is great because it beats the you out of you, so now you're useful. <laughs> and, and, and when someone comes up to him and says, thank you for your service, his, his uh, response you're worth it. Wouldn't that take you back? I mean, every time I've said thank you to your service for someone, they say, they say, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, no one's ever said you're worth it, man. That's powerful. Because if, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, well, wow, I'm, I better go be worth it. Am I worth it? I mean, my first thought, am I worth it? No, <laughs> so I better go be worth it. Clint Bruce is the name. Carry the load. The, uh, the organization. I read the re- uh, a review of a book. The other day, the book is called um, Things That Gain From Disorder. And the author has a very simple premise. Uh, We live in a world where you're either fragile or you're resilient. Fragile or resilient. Now, uh, we get that difference, right? Someone who's fragile, something that's fragile, breaks easily. Uh, A glass vase is fragile. Or fragile, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And then the, the opposite of that is someone who is resilient, and a resilient person bounces back, right? They face hardship, and they, they make it through. It's like a phoenix in mythology, right? The bird, it dies, and then from the ashes, uh, another phoenix emerges, just as before. The problem is none of those are great. <laughs> so so f- fragile's bad. Uh, resilient is good, but not great. And, and this author says we, we need something more than that in our culture, but we don't have a word for it. And it's bad. It's bad if there's a concept that doesn't have a word associated with it because that means it's not a very popular concept. Because not enough people have been like, hmm, we should come up with a word for this. Uh, so, so this author came up with a word. Uh, but, but real quick, why isn't resilient good enough? Because you don't grow. 
Nothing's improved at the end of that hardship. It's good, better than being fragile, but I don't know. Like the Phoenix, it comes back just the same as it was before. It's not different. It's not stronger. It's not better. It's just the same. So this guy says we need to be more like the Hydra. So the Hydra in Greek mythology is a massive multi-headed lizard. And whenever someone cuts off one of its heads, two more grow back in its place. So the Hydra grows stronger with adversity. And we don't have a word for this. So, so he made up one. Anti-fragile. I don't know if that's a good word or not, but that's all we got right now. Anti-fragile. You get stronger through resilience. I guess the simplest analogy that we would all understand is when you, uh, you go lift weights. When you go lift weights, you, you break your muscles down. And then they grow back stronger. So then you can lift more weights and you lift more weights and then you break your muscles down again and then they grow back stronger and stronger and stronger. Clinton Bruce is a man who clearly recognizes the importance of not being fragile, but not thinking that resilient is enough and being anti-fragile, growing stronger through adversity. Remember two weeks ago, I think we talked about uh, kids at Boston College. $60,000 a year to go to Boston College. Okay, top-notch school. And the head of the counseling department called all the professors and administrators together, had a little heart-to-heart, a little state-of-the-school address, a state-of-the-psychological needs of the school. And the guy said, listen, this is is very bad, what's what's happening here at Boston College. Uh, He said the kids here are, uh, they lack resilience. They're fragile. They lack resilience. They expect uh, their their hand to be held. They're, they're afraid to be challenged, let alone challenging themselves. Students are afraid to fail. So they don't take risks. And external measures of success are more important than... Uh, autonomous development and, and learning, right? So that, that's a result of the everyone gets a trophy culture, right? It's all about getting that trophy. It's all about participating. It's all about showing up, not about doing well, just being there. So an external measure of success. So praise, external praise is more important than actually winning the game or actually like doing your better, right? Like actually showing up and improving. It's just um, about getting that, that participation trophy. That's, that's the result of that. And now the first generation of that, those kids are now in college and wouldn't you know it. But the point is, kids are less resilient. And as life is thrown in the way of these kids, they're, they're fragile, they're weak, they're afraid to take risks. They need to be babied first by their parents at home as they were their entire lives and now by their college. <laughs> the college is babying them. Very dangerous. We need to raise our kids not to be fragile, obviously, but not even to be resilient, but to be anti-fragile. May I suggest perhaps throwing that uh, that term around the dinner table tonight? Talking to your kids about the difference. Fragile, resilient, anti-fragile. I don't know if I like that word anti-fragile, but I certainly like the concept. The, the need, the ability to grow through adversity.
right now we're seeing the fruits of this experiment the last 20 years of letting everyone win all the time or not keeping score and all that. And because of it, kids can't do anything. They can't do anything and they're emotionally traumatized at, at everything. one 888 I want to come back. I want to tell the story of um, some elephants. And nothing to do with, nothing to do with the Republican Party. Like actual elephants. It's a story of real life elephants. And what happened when they were moved from one park to the next? And I want to share this story because every once in a while we think we're so much better than uh, the animals. <laughs> we, think, we think we're so much different than the animals. And I don't know, maybe we are, but gosh, it, it seems like we just keep trying to act more like them. It seems like, it seems like we're going backwards, perhaps. I want to share this story of... Uh, Couple elephants coming up next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. National Park and Game Reserve in South Africa. Uh, they had a problem a couple years back. Too many elephants. About 20 years ago. Too many elephants. The park could not sustain them all. So uh, the plan was to move some of the elephants to another park. Now, as you can imagine, uh, not easy to move an elephant. So a special harness was created. Uh, and the plan was to airlift these elephants to another park using helicopters, which would be a funny sight. Uh, and the helicopter was, was strong enough, but the harnesses weren't strong enough to carry. Uh, at least they, they couldn't carry the adult elephants. They couldn't carry the, they carry the male elephants, the bulls. So they decided to leave the male elephants, they were too big, and move uh, some of the uh, female adults and the baby elephants. And they did. And uh, problem solved. The herd was thinned out, and no elephants were killed, and all was well in Kruger National Park. That's it. That's the end of my story. That's at least that's the end of the story when it comes to Kruger National Park. Uh, in about a year or so, another problem started at the at the new park where the baby elephants were moved to. Rangers kept coming across bodies of uh, dead white rhinos. Now, white rhinos are endangered. Now, obviously, they thought that poachers did it. But then they'd come up on these rhinos, and the rhinos were not... uh, They had no gunshot wounds. And then then their horns were left intact, which is the whole purpose of killing the rhinos. And then they studied these rhinos a little more, and they found out that they they died of uh, violent deaths with deep internal wounds and so like what's what's going on here so the rangers set up hidden cameras what did they find 
they found roaming bands of aggressive juvenile elephants caught on camera chasing after the rhinos, knocking them down and stomping on them until they died. And then they left. And the elephants terrorized other animals in the park as well. Scientists have never seen this before. They've never, what is going on? This is not normal behavior. It's called must. Spelled like it sounds, spelled like, you know, M-U-S-T. M-U-S-T. It's a must. It's a state of frenzy that a male experiences, especially during mating season. Now, normally, 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 the dominant bulls, the dominant male, keeps the younger males in line. But because the baby elephants were moved to a different park and the adult males were left behind, there were no adult males around. And the young elephants just went wild. So the ranger said, we can't have this anymore. So they figured out how to bring an adult male to this new park. And as soon as they did, the violent behavior stopped just like that. In other words, the older elephants let the younger elephants know that their behavior was not elephant-like. This is not how elephants behave, little guys. Stay in line. Now, this story first came out a couple years back uh, when there were uh, marauding bands of teenagers, human teenagers, terrorizing Central Park in New York City. Just beating people up, just waiting and beating people up randomly. So you see where this is going. I don't need to spell out the analogy anymore. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he was a senator in New York in the 70s, I think all the way to the 90s. Uh, He was a sociologist by trade. And he wrote a report and he said, from the wild Irish slums of the 19th century, eastern seaboard, to the riot-torn suburbs of Los Angeles, there's one unmistakable lesson in American history. This is it. One unmistakable lesson. A community that allows a large number of young men to grow in broken homes, dominated by women, never acquiring any stable relationships to male authority, never acquiring any rational expectations for the future. That community asks for and gets chaos. We live in a country where prisons have replaced parents. Last week, oh, and someone wrote me a Twitter on this. And I totally forgot to respond. I apologize. I'll do it right now. Uh, last week, we talked about the, the list of behavioral issues in, uh, among kids who uh, grow up without having dads. Uh, 64% of all suicides, uh, teen suicides are kids who don't have uh, dads, fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway kids, fatherless homes. 85% of people with behavioral disorders, fatherless home. I mean, that's crazy. And we think that can be solved with, with pill. I mean, th- th- when I say crazy, I mean, this is like, is that pretty obvious that there's a correlation there? 85% of kids with behavioral disorders don't have a dad or father at home. And we think that, that can be solved with popping some pills. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. It's because they grew up not knowing how to treat women. Think about, we just talked with Clint Bruce, right? What was the line he said? He said, I want to be a man that's worthy of my girls. Those girls are going to grow up to expect a man like their, their dad. And he said, he said, it was something like, uh, if I don't like the guy that my, that my girls bring home, that's on me. Like, that, that's my fault. 
Because that, that, that guy's a reflection of who I've been. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 85% of kids in prison, uh, jail, come in fatherless homes. You get the idea. And we're talking 43% of kids live without their dads. And that, that I mean, and then you get another, at least 10% of unstable homes, right? So at least half, half, half of kids are like those elephants who were moved to a different game reserve. There's going to be problems. And like I said in the last segment, sometimes we think we're so different from animals. And I don't know, maybe we are, but it seems like we're going out of our way to act more like them. But gosh, it's such a simple fix. It really is. Or at least we know the answer. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Want to come back with a little bit of uh, Ben Carson news. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slider Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Um, oh, it's on Fox Business yesterday. I forgot to mention that. Uh, we'll put it on our YouTube page. I don't know. Got a busy day. Maybe, <laughs> maybe tomorrow. I've been painting my buddy's house all day. It's like 7 a.m. we started. I had to take a break for this. And I'm going to go back be there all night. Um, so I don't know, maybe I'll put it up tomorrow and it'll be on there on the weekend. Uh, do, 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 let's talk about Ben Carson. It is good that um, there's a lot of criticism of Ben Carson lately. I like that. It's better than uh, ignoring him. It means he's uh, means he's up there. It means they're paying attention to him. A couple different things. First, uh, I mean they're they're doing their darndest to smear him. So so there's some news in the oh, news story in the National Enquirer about all of his medical malpractice suits. He had a handful of them over, you know, thousands of surgeries and no article will ever provide any context to that remarkably low percentage of medical malpractice. But they'll find one person who had an issue with their brain, had brain surgery from Ben Carson and then their condition did not get better and blame Ben Carson as if he's a miracle worker. He's, he's, he's as close as you get. When it comes to uh, you know brain surgeons. Anyway, they're smearing him about medical malpractice. Then they claim that Ben Carson blamed the victims of the Oregon shooting in the, in the college there. He blamed the victims. He said it's their fault that they were shot and killed. You know what he really said? Someone asked him, I think it was on Fox News, they said, what would you have done if a gunman walks up to you and says, what religion are you? Right, because there's reports, that's what the the, uh, the gunman in Oregon said. He said, are you a Christian or what religion are you? And people who said Christian shot him in the head. So that question was posed to, to Ben Carson. And his answer was, quote, and I'll read this and you tell me if, the, if he's blaming the victims. Quote, I'm glad you asked that question because not only would I probably not cooperate with him, I would not just stand there and let someone shoot me. I would say, hey guys, everybody attack him. He may shoot me, but he can't get us all. End quote. Is that victim blaming? I don't know. 
the stretch to if it is. But here's the one I want to talk about. So he uh, was asked about gun control, and he said, quote, the likelihood of Hitler. Uh-oh. Mentioned Hitler. Just can't get away with that. You can't mention anything about Hitler anymore. But let me finish the quote. The likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. End quote. Everyone lost their minds. You, you can't. I don't know why you can't make any argument, any comment, any reference to Hitler. Hitler's just this do not enter zone of any argument whatsoever, as if he wasn't a part of human history a mere 70 years ago. Right? We're just supposed to skip over that. Never mention Hitler ever. Why not? Like it, it really happened. He was a real guy. And again, not that long ago. People blamed Carson for being anti-Semitic with that comment. And no one, no one is applying any context to it and saying, well, you know, it's, uh, it's true. That's actually what, what Ben Carson said. He said the likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. That is absolutely 100% true. Is anyone denying that? Is that it's absolutely true. Pretty sure if you went back in time and you asked Jewish people in Poland, would you would you like a gun to defend yourself from the Nazis or or no? Pretty sure they'd say yes. Now, would this have prevented the Holocaust? Probably not. But Carson never said it would have. Have you ever heard of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising? We have some proof about what happens, uh, what would have happened if the resistance was armed. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So the Warsaw Ghetto was the largest ghetto in Poland. 300,000 Jews. And in, uh, it's pretty big. There's a, I'm trying to think. we're all over the country, so it's hard to compare it to something, but, um, actually, hold on, let me, what's like a, what's a city we think of a lot? Uh, let's see. What's population of Boise. Ah, good. 214,000 population of Boise, 214,000. What's a city that may have 300,000 people? Pittsburgh. There you go. Look at that. I just, I thought of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, 305,000 people. There you have it. So there you go. Pittsburgh. Uh, so Warsaw Ghetto, 300,000 Jews the size of Pittsburgh. 1942. Some Nazis came into the, the ghetto to, to grab as many uh, Jews as they could that day and go deport them and kill them. 750 fighters with 100 guns were able to hold off the Nazis for over a month. Think about this. The Germans, the Nazis, had to spend more time subduing the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising than they did in conquering the entire nations of Poland or France. And it was a hundred guns. 750 fighters with a hundred guns. Now, the Jewish people there, they knew they had no chance of of winning. But they thought it was better to die fighting than to die in a gas chamber. 
It was better to kill some of the killers than to let them massacre all of everyone else in that town without a fight. There was a man who was there in the Warsaw Ghetto. His name was Emanuel Ringelblum, and he wrote a uh, uh, diary. And he said, we took stock of our position. This is from his diary. We took stock of our position and saw that this was a struggle between a fly and an elephant. But our national dignity dictated to us that the Jews must offer resistance and not allow themselves to be led wantonly to slaughter. I want to take a break here. I'll share more of the story here next, but I want want to, because it's an amazing story, but I want to finish up with Ben Carson. My point is Ben Carson was 100% right. 100%. He said the likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. Greatly diminished. Not eliminate. Greatly diminished. 100% right. And again, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, there were 100 guns. Imagine if they had 1,000 guns. Or imagine if every person in the ghetto had a gun. Now, the relevance of this in today's world is, is up for debate. I was with some friends uh, this last weekend uh, and, and uh, a couple anti-gun folks who live in New York City and they don't think anyone should have a gun and they think it's ridiculous that guns exist and you know, there's way too many guns and that's why everyone's being shot so we gotta ban all the guns or whatever. So they will never, those people, my, my friends from college, they will never, actually I should be more clear, my friends for college are all for guns. Their wives, <laughs> I'll throw them under the bus. Uh, they will never see the relevance of an armed resistance against an invading military force. Like I'll, I can tell them the story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. They'll be, that was 70 years ago, Slater, whatever. There's no relevance to that today. All right, fine. Okay, I understand if you... Uh, think that that doesn't have any relevance uh, now or in the future. But you cannot deny that it happened. You cannot deny. You can you can disagree that it has relevance for the future, but you cannot deny that it happened in the past. Now, I believe you're you're foolish or fooling yourself if you think that it won't also happen again. But you certainly can't deny that it happened. And for that reason, I don't know why we live in a culture where you just can't mention anything with it. Like, no historical reference to Hitler whatsoever is allowed, even if it's 100% accurate. <laughs> Crazy. one 933 93 I think it's worth taking another second when we come back, and we'll tell a little more about the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Really fascinating um, story. Not, it's not even a Second Amendment story. It's a story about dignity. Right? It's a story about not going down without a fight. And wait till you hear how the how the, uh, the Nazis responded when they found out that there were 750 people with 100 guns. Like That's all, 100 guns! And wait till you hear how the Germans turned and ran. Tell that story next. one 888 and uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, thanks for being here. I've got a couple more minutes here. We're, what started this conversation was uh, Ben Carson getting smeared everywhere, which is good. You know, in a way, it, they, you know, the fact that they're trying their best to to smear him is uh, is noteworthy. That means they're scared. Uh, but he said the other day, the likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had been armed. And it's 100% true. So I want to tell the story real quick of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Story that's probably not going to be taught in schools. Because I can't mention guns in school. I didn't read the article, but I saw a headline. Like, there was some lockdown or something happened because some kid said the word gum. I didn't, I didn't read the full article. I should read that before I bring it up. But, but just to prove how uh, crazy everyone is with guns and Pop-Tarts that look like guns and uh, one kid got a letter sent home. He was suspended because he uh, made a gun with his ha- out of his hand. That's what the, that's what the letter said. He made a gun out of his hand. And you're thinking, well, that's that's not a gun. If, <laughs> how do you make a gun out of your? I mean, no, I know you make the image of a gun, but you can't make an actual gun with your hand. So why are you suspending me? Like that's so ridiculous. So everyone's lost their mind. So they can't possibly tell a story in history. That uh, where guns um, and people with guns uh, defended themselves. So Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, 1942, largest Jewish ghetto in Poland, 300,000 people, the size of Pittsburgh. And 750 of them started an uprising, fought back against the Nazis. They held out for over a month with only 100 guns. And in the end, they only it only ended because they ran out of ammunition. But that moment really changed the perception of of Jews from being submissive to having the the ability and desire uh, to fight back. Quick background. It was a couple months ago, my local show, we talked to uh, a couple, the Schindlers. They live here in San Diego. And uh, the wife, Rose, oh, they're both Auschwitz survivors. And Rose um, told us the story of when her entire family was rounded up and put on a train. And it was, it was so, it was such a strange story. It was something like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little, but this is pretty close. They um, like rang the bells in the town square. So everyone came to the town square and, and there's one of the people in the town said, Everyone line up here tomorrow. We got to go on this train. And, and and then tomorrow came and everyone lined up and went on the train. And it was that simple. And, and, and Rose, she was telling the story and, and she trailed off at the end of it. And let me say, we talked for two hours. We talked for two hours on the radio and she was sharp as a tack the entire time. But the one time when her eyes sort of glazed off and looked into the distance, is when she was telling this part of the story, getting on the train. And she trailed off and she said, I, I have no idea why no one fought back. Now, she was a little girl at the time. But she, says, I, she said, no one fought. Everyone went willingly. There, no one fought back. And she couldn't believe it. Even still today, she couldn't believe it. Now, she has hindsight and maybe the people in the town didn't know that, you know exactly what was going to happen, but... I mean, that still haunts her today. She's like, why did my parents not fight or try to stop it? No, no one, there's no resistance. But in the Warsaw Ghetto, they did fight back. 
Uh, can I want to read just a, a couple diary entries here, if that's okay. Um, these are diary entries from people who were in the Warsaw Ghetto. The faces who only yesterday reflected terror and despair, now shone with an unusual joy, which is difficult to describe. This was a joy free from all personal motives, a joy of the pride that the ghetto was fighting. And they went on to describe the German reaction when they found out that these, the Jews had guns. Uh, quote, there, there, there runs a German soldier shrieking like an insane one. The helmet on his head on fire. Another one shouts madly, Juden Waffen, Juden Waffen. Jews, weapons, Jews, weapons. That's, what, that's, what the, that's how the Nazis reacted when they found out the Jews were going to fight back. There was a poster that someone posted in, in Warsaw. Um, it was a message from the Jewish Fighting Organization. To so these were the um, that was the resistance to the Christian Polish uh, resistance, and it was a message to the Christians that the Jews would never surrender. And the poster said, "You have seen and will see that every doorstop in the ghetto is and will continue to be a fortress. We may all perish in the struggle, but we shall not surrender. Long live the brotherhood of weapons and the blood of fighting Poland. Long live freedom. Death to the murderous and criminal occupants." Yeah, this is uh, Emanuel Ringelblum. I read a quote of his earlier. He was in the Warsaw Ghetto. He said in his diary, he said, whomever you talk to, you hear the same cry. The resettlement never should have been permitted. We should have run into the street, set fire to everything in sight, torn down the walls, what anything it took. And yeah, the Germans would have taken their revenge. It would have cost tens of thousands of lives, but not 300,000. Now we are ashamed of ourselves. Disgraced in our own eyes. And in the eyes of the world. Where our docility has earned us nothing. Our submissiveness has earned us nothing. This must not be repeated now. We must put up a resistance, defend ourselves against the enemy man and child. I'll end with this. This is from uh, Adam Sachar. He is a Holocaust historian. He said the indispensable need, uh, of course, was arms. As soon as some Jews, even in the camps themselves, obtained possession of a weapon, however pathetically inadequate, whether a rifle, an axe, a sewer cover, a homemade bomb, they used it and often took Nazis with them to death. Thus, the difference between resistance and submission depended very largely upon who was in possession of the arms that back up the will to do or die. Now, let me uh, be clear here. I'm not, I didn't share this story of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Um, uh, This has nothing to do with, you know, preventing school shootings or something. I'm not saying that America today is the same as Germany in 1938. I bring it up because when Ben Carson and others say the likelihood of Hitler being able to accomplish his goals would have been greatly diminished if the people had had been armed and, and is mocked mocked, ridiculed 
you know that the people doing the mocking don't want to have a conversation on its merits. They resort merely to mockery. And my point is that this is a conversation worth having. And the left wants to make it seem that Ben Carson is, is just a dumb idiot. Even if he's 100% right, mockery and ridicule are the weapons of the left that they're using against Ben Carson. Luckily, to little avail. one 900 So last uh, Monday was Columbus Day. Columbus Day is becoming one of my favorite holidays uh, because I always forget how much some people hate it. <laughs> how much the social justice warriors just hate, hate, hate Columbus Day with a white hot hatred. And that makes me like it all the more. Uh, we'll give a more complete version of who this man was and what he did and why it is uh, a day worth celebrating. We'll do that next. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater hey slater who's slater thanks for being slater radio on uh the tweet machine you can search for the mike slater show on on facebook we can hang out all week long not just once a week every day so last uh, monday was was a monday was columbus day yeah um i love columbus day fun holiday because uh, every year i forget how much the social justice warriors hate it I didn't even know it was Columbus Day until the day of. There, was, there wasn't a lot of traffic on the way to work. It's like, what's going on here? Oh, yeah, it's like some people have off. Um, and, then, and then I was online and just reading about how much people hate Columbus Day. It's funny. Uh, here's some from Twitter. Uh, happy, I'm here for all your stuff and going to kill you and all because I'm a white man day. Let's celebrate Columbus Day by walking into somebody's house and telling them that we live here now. To say Columbus discovered America is a slap in the face to the indigenous people who had amazing civilizations here for thousands of years. We'll get back to the amazing part in just a second. Uh, Let's see. The Columbus story is filled with agonizing screams, families torn apart, torment, murder, confusion, and degradation. Let's see. Um, Columbus was on his search for gold, made a wrong turn, found land, and wiped out an entire indigenous people. America! Happy Columbus Day. Let me go on forever. Uh, let's 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 talk about Christopher Columbus for a second. A um, couple things. First, was he the first outsider to discover America? No. Leif Erikson and the Vikings made it to America around the year a thousand, but they didn't stick around. Uh, that's point number. One. Point number two. And we'll go into all this stuff a little deeper in a second. But point number two. Uh, did, and these are just things that I remember being told when I was in you know, third grade. Did everyone laugh at Christopher Columbus because he thought the world was round and everyone else thought it was flat? And Christopher Columbus said, I'm going to prove it to you and I'm going to sail around the world and prove that it, I'm not going to fall off the edge of it. And everyone, bah, it's ridiculous. You're an idiot. No, that never happened. Uh, so it is a, it is a myth that uh, 
people thought the world was flat. Almost no one thought the world was flat. Ever since Socrates, everyone knew that the world was round. So why is that a thing? Why do people say that? People say that today because they say that the only people who thought the world was flat were the religious scholars of the day. So they say this, they make it seem like like the religious leaders thought the world was flat to make religious people seem stupid. But almost no one thought the world was flat. So Christopher Columbus had nothing to do with that. Then when Christopher Columbus did make it to, you know, what we know as the Bahamas today, uh, yeah, he brought smallpox with him and most of the locals died. So there's just some clarifications, but let's add some, some depth to all of this. First on whether or not he was the first person here. Columbus was not the first person to discover America, but he was the most important. His discovery mattered. This led, he led to the first permanent settlement in the new world and the first permanent settlement that brought with it science, reason, and dare I say Christianity. And that changed the entire course of human history and and our history. Imagine if the Chinese discovered America first, and they would have if, if the Ming dynasty didn't cut back their ships for exploring. If they set up the first colony in what is now California or wherever, things would be very, very different. So the fact that Columbus did it first, set up a permanent colony first, is very important. Second thing, let's talk about the mass genocide. To blame Columbus for spreading smallpox and killing most of the locals is as foolish as blaming the Muslim traders who first brought the plague to Europe, which killed 50 million people. Does anyone claim that there was a Muslim genocide against Europe for bringing in the plague? Honestly, think about that. It was Muslim... It was Muslim traders. Let me be clear here because no one ever says it. Muslim traders, traders from Northern Africa and Middle East, Muslim traders brought the plague into Europe, which killed 50 million people. Does anyone blame the Muslims? No, and I'm not saying you should. But that's what happened. No one says it's a Muslim genocide. So why, when when Christopher Columbus came to the New World and brought smallpox with him, why is that a white man genocide or a European genocide against the indigenous people? The plague killed 50 million people. And, should note, it was the Native Americans, the Indians, who first had syphilis, which the Europeans brought back with them to Europe, which killed 5 million Europeans. Does anyone call about an Indian genocide? No, of course not. And neither of it is. This is just what happens. When people who have not ever had any contact have contact for the first time. And it's happened all over the world, all throughout the, whenever people interact with each other for the first time. It's always happened. There's no blame here. <laughs> it's just, it's just, this is the way it was. And there was no medicine back then. So, I mean, oh, you know, you also hear about the slaves. Oh, Christopher Columbus took a bunch of slaves or whatever. Again, context slavery was was nothing unique at the time and slavery wasn't anything unique to the tribes that were living in america at the time right i mean there the native american tribes had slaves and again if the chinese discovered america first if if the japanese landed in, in on the pacific coast 
or if the Portuguese landed in America instead of Brazil, then A, they would have spread a lot of diseases just the same as Christopher Columbus and his people did, and they would have spread slavery just the same. They would have taken people just the same because slavery happened everywhere. And I would argue that if the native tribes in America were more advanced and they landed in Europe, and if they were more advanced and more powerful, they would have spread their form of slavery throughout Europe. It just so happened to go the other way around at the time. But again, no one's to blame for that. It's just the way it was. Because Christopher Columbus subscribed to the belief that those who are conquered in battle were taken as slaves. And that was a view that was held by everybody at the time and has always been the view in human history. And I want to go back to this point. This guy was like, oh, you know, a white man came and invaded the amazing civilization of there's, there's such a frustrating myth that that the native people, the indigenous people were these peace loving Oh, one with nature, harmonious saints of people. Are you kidding me? You can't. Why do you think that? Why do you think they were such wonderful, peace-loving people? I'll tell you, if they were more advanced, they would have slaughtered any white man who came on the shore. It just so happened the, the Europeans were more advanced. Columbus landed in um, uh, modern-day Haiti. He made a settlement uh, called La Navidad, Christmas. He left the colony, came back a year later, and he expected a, a thriving colony when he arrived a year later. And instead, he got off the boat and all 39 of the colonists were dead. The native tribe killed them. Because that's what people did back then. They fought. They killed each other all the time. Just like the native tribes would kill other native tribes. Gosh, it's so frustrating. <laughs> really? Oh, but the native people were so wonderful. And Listen, if we really did a study on who the indigenous peoples were... It wouldn't be a very flowery portrait if you wanted to have a complete picture. It's not somewhere you would want to be or, or want to be a part of. But again, we create this romantic vision of them because uh, Christopher Columbus is white and evil, therefore. So why celebrate Columbus Day? First of all, or Columbus, no one's perfect. So I don't think it's fair to call Christopher Columbus the worst person in the world, but I don't think it's fair to call him the best person either. But I will celebrate his bravery and um, an exploration, which started the path which led to us being here today. And if I can quote Charles Cook, who I think puts it very nicely, he said, Columbus set off a veritable scramble for America that culminated in British triumph, American insurrection, and the eventual glorification of Enlightenment values. Think about that. He let off the scramble for America. The British won. The Americans took over. And now we have true Enlightenment values in this land of liberty. So why does the left hate Christopher Columbus so much? Well, it's simple. Because he started the movement which led to America. And America is bad. So he is bad. It's no more complicated than that. And honestly, if nothing else, you'd think we'd be able to celebrate Christopher Columbus just for the mere feat of getting here. Now, sure, he found it by accident, but that doesn't make his journey any less spectacular. And this is what I would love. It. I'd love it if, if there's any teachers listening now or anyone. 
I'd love it if there was a classroom of of kids. I don't know what age. Uh, 10 to 15. Whatever. Take away their GPSs and tell them to make it to the nearest Starbucks. Just go ahead, kids. Just walk. Go ahead and walk to the nearest Starbucks. I don't think well, it can't be more than a four mile walk. I don't think any of them would be successful in getting there, and they would whine and complain the entire day. And it would be a harrowing journey. And then you could make the point that very comparable to the years that Columbus spent in the open ocean, having no idea what was out there. I wish kids could have a taste of that feat, and then I think they would admire Christopher Columbus for at least his exploration skills. But no, he's a white man who brought smallpox and killed the indigenous peoples. We have to hate him forever. Give me a break. one 888 Oh, one, one last thing. They don't teach this in school either. Why did the Europeans want to find a new route east? Right, they wanted to get to India, right? So why, why, weren't they, why didn't they just keep doing what they've always been doing? Going west. Why did they want to go east? Or why, why did they just, Sorry. Why did they not just keep going over, uh, going in the direction they've been going in? East. Why did they go west? Sorry. Why did they go west in order to go around the world? Like, why did they want to do that? It seems like a long way to go. The reason they did that is because the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire took over Constantinople in 1453 or something. So Constantinople, it's Istanbul today in Turkey, was a major, the major trade route to the east. And the Muslims took it over. And they jacked up the prices to the Christian Europeans. So Europe wanted to find a way to India without Muslim interference. So in the end, the argument could be made that the Europeans conquering of the new world was due to the Muslim invasion of the old world. Nah, that's not PC either. Better just talk about how Columbus was an evil white man. one 888 Mike Slater, show the plays. Radio Network, spread the word. This is... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I only got three minutes, but while we are debunking uh, history, uh, you may have saw this story on the Blaze a couple days ago, um, and I saw it on Huffington Post, and the, the headline on Huffington Post said, Mom slams textbook's incredibly offensive definition of slavery in viral Facebook posts. And I was like, ah, oh, that's clickbait. Click. So here's the deal. The the uh, textbook had a, uh, cap- had a picture of America, and the caption said, and see if you can pick out the problem. The Atlantic slave trade between the 1500s and 1800s brought millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations. And the mom says, workers? That's a strange way to describe slaves. And freaked out. So the guys at McGraw-Hill and people at McGraw-Hill said uh, they're going to change that to better emphasize that this was slave labor, which is a little different than uh, workers. So I agree with that. Very nice. Uh, it's all good. But but I have another problem with that sentence. Uh, let's see if you can pick it up again. The Atlantic slave trade between the 1500s and 1800s brought millions of workers from Africa to the southern United States to work on agricultural plantations. Now, mom, again, was worried about the word workers. I'm concerned about the word right before that. Millions. 
millions of workers, or let's just say slaves, millions of slaves to the southern United States. That is wrong. That is not accurate at all. Twelve and a half million Africans were shipped from Africa to the New World. Eleven million survived the journey. Five million were shipped to Brazil alone. Uh, Also other places in South America and then a couple million more in the Caribbean. Of the twelve and a half million who started the journey, how many do you think made it to America? According to this textbook, millions. 400,000. From 1525 to 1866, the entire slave trade period, 400,000 Africans were shipped to the southern United States. 400,000. That is not millions. It's not even one million, let alone millions. I don't know how a textbook can get away with. How can you just flippantly throw millions around? Millions of slaves. It wasn't millions. 400,000. Now, way too many. Don't get me wrong. But like, how about some accuracy? Now, I'll end on this. I'm not sure the right way to teach slavery to our kids. I'm sure there's a lot of different right ways. But I would love it if there was more context to the period. Context about slavery around the world. About how the slave trade existed long before America existed in Africa. How the slave trade to America was led by Africans in Africa. How white people have been taking slaves throughout history. The word slave comes from Slavic, meaning people of Eastern Europe taken by slaves by Muslims. And I wish more was taught about men like Booker T. Washington and Frederick Douglass, who were born slaves and overcame that obstacle. With the values that built America... Resilience, grit, determination, gratitude, justice, and made the best of their lives. I wish our kids had that perspective instead of whatever they're taught now. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Slater Radio on Twitter. And I search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, I would put this, gentlemen, uh, under the category of, um, of intellectual courage. So obviously you have physical courage. We talk on the show a lot about moral courage, but you also got intellectual courage as well. His name's Freeman Dyson. Uh, now he's uh, he's been around for a while. He's ninety one. So I don't think he really cares at this point. He's like, whatever. This is what I think. Uh, he's one of the greatest physicists around. Uh, he was a contemporary of, of Einstein at Princeton, and he was doing an interview the other day. Um, and he had the intellectual courage to be a skeptic. Remember a couple weeks back, maybe a month ago, we talked about uh, da, 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 Michael Crichton and how he said, why he's against global warming as well. He's given a speech at Caltech 2003. He said, since when in science did the word skeptic become a bad thing? That's like the point of science is to prove everyone else wrong with new data, new theories, new proofs. So why is skeptic a bad thing? So anyway, uh, Freeman Dyson had the intellectual courage to come out uh, very clearly as a skeptic. So the interviewer asked him why. Like, why, 
why are people believing this nonsense about global warming and climate change? And this is what he said. He said, quote, it's a mood of the times. He said, it is true that there's a large community of people who make their money by scaring the public. So money is certainly involved to some extent. But I don't think that's the full explanation. This is interesting. I'll take a pause here. A lot of people will say oh, it's all fueled by money. Al Gore, the scientists getting grants, all the rest. It's all about money. And this scientist says, yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> part of it. Definitely. But that's not the full explanation. Go on, sir. He said it's like a hundred years ago before World War One. There was this insane craving for doom, which in a way helped cause World War One. People like the poet Rupert Brooke were glorifying war, war as an escape from the dullness of modern life. There was this feeling that we'd gone soft and degenerate, and war would be good for us all. If you go to a quick time out, it was in Germany a couple of years ago. I went to a bunch of you know museums, World War One, World War Two museums, and the uniforms in the beginning of World War One were these bright, colorful, ornate wildly impractical uniforms because just as if the just as the professor was saying it was you know war was this glorified thing and we were gonna it was you know there is like hearkening back to a you know a, a, a day when when we can march into war as as men and come home as heroes right and so they're like these super ornate uniform almost costumes and then by the end of the war i mean good they, people realized the reality of war and the costumes weren't bright red anymore or whatever um so that's just an example of uh backing up the professor here so he says there was this air leading up to world war one and in the same way it's in the air today um let's see here jump forward we're gonna break all this down a little more the professor the uh interviewer says it almost seems medieval to suppose that nature is punishing us rather than the enlightenment view that we can tame nature and still be good stewards of it. I want to get to that in a second. Uh, and then the, and then the professor says that's true. And the interviewer says it's now difficult for scientists to have frank and honest input into public debates. Professor Brian Cox, who's the public face of physics in the United Kingdom, thanks to the BBC, I guess that'd be like our Bill Nye, the science guy has said, there's no obligation. Listen to this. There's no obligation to listen to deniers. Or to any other views other than the orthodoxy. And the professor says that's a problem. It's very sad that in this country, political opinion parted people's views on climate change. I'm a 100% Democrat myself, and I like Obama. But he took the wrong side on this issue, and the Republicans took the right side. And then later he goes on to say this line, which is great. We'll get to this one, too. He says, pollution is quite separate from climate change. One can be solved. The other cannot. And the public doesn't understand that. That's such a brilliant point. And, and the, the environmentalists, people on the left, have purposefully conflated the two. Pollution and climate change are totally different. <laughs> we can solve pollution. We cannot solve climate change. So I want to break all these down, but let's just sit on this point first. The big point, intellectual courage it took for this man to come out and say what he did against 
orthodoxy. Now I want to talk about the flip side, intellectual cowardice. There's a group of scientists, and I use that term scientist loosely, as loosely as possible. Not because of their academic credentials, but I'll explain here. A group of 20 climate scientists who are asking the president to prosecute, prosecute fellow scientists who disagree with them on man-made global warming. Put them in jail. The 20 climate scientists said, we appreciate that you are the president, to the president, we appreciate that you are making aggressive and imaginative use of the limited tools available to you in the face of a recalcitrant Congress. SAT word. One additional tool is a RICO investigation. That is the racketeer, uh, what's it stand for? I forgot it the other day. Racketeer, racketeer influenced and corrupt organizations, something like that. RICO Act. It's what they used against the mob. Use the RICO Act. On corporations and other organizations that have knowingly deceived the American people about the risks of climate change. Think about this. We have scientists, quote unquote scientists, proposing that someone who has different research, different results, and different conclusions be thrown in jail. If you are believing that someone who has a different scientific opinion than yours be thrown in jail, then you, sir, are not a scientist. You are a hack. You are an absolute hack. Just think about it. What if one day you came to some conclusion that was different than the orthodoxy, that was different than what you were supposed to believe? Do you believe that you should be thrown in jail? Of course not. How dare you think that other people should be thrown in jail because they happen to have a different opinion than you do? And I just I can't even fathom like having a petition or having a letter and, and going up to a scientist and saying, hey, do you think people that disagree with you should be thrown in jail? That person's like, yes, yes, I do. Anyone that disagrees with me should be thrown in jail. What are you talking about? Absolutely stunning. Absolutely stunning. Uh, let me... we got a minute here. Let me break down one uh, point. But anyway, does that make sense? So you got intellectual courage and intellectual cowardice. Um, I really like this point that the interviewer made, actually. He said, it seems almost medieval to suppose that nature is punishing us rather than the Enlightenment view that we can tame nature and still be good stewards of it and and the professor said that's true so so what are we do we have do you hold to the medieval view that nature punishes us or do you believe in the enlightenment view that we can tame nature and still be good stewards of it are you an enlightenment thinker or are you a medieval thinker i was thinking about this the other day um like a month ago my wife and i went to palm springs for the weekend um palm springs at like an, two hours away from San Diego, like an hour maybe away from L.A., out in the desert. I was driving back from Palm Springs through the mountains. It's beautiful. And I was thinking, how did these mountains form? And I had to go back to my eighth grade earth science. And I'm thinking about the tectonic plates moving. And I, and I got thinking, you know, that that's not climate change. That is the earth is moving. Like the, the plates of the planet are moving, causing giant mountains to be formed. That's some pretty big change over time, isn't it? And then I thought about lakes. Do you know how the Great Lakes were formed? Glaciers. Glaciers. They were carved out thousands of years ago by glaciers. So powerful. 
and so heavy that they gouged the Earth's surface and melted and made these massive lakes. Lake Superior is the second largest lake in the world. You took all the water. This is a, this is a fact I heard. If anyone back in New York can uh, confirm this fact, but I like it. Uh, if you took all the water from Lake Superior, it would cover the entire land of North and South America in a foot of water. It's a lot of water. And you think, how did the glaciers even form? And how did they melt? Cars? It's crazy. The earth changes all the time. And it's not the role of humans to alter that change. It's the job of humans to try and survive it. (laughs) Right? It's the job of humans to not die. We have to tame nature in order to live. And it's certainly not the job of humans to throw in jail scientists who may have a different opinion on something for the love of Pete. Our job is not to t- uh, to, to um, change nature. It's to survive it. What does that mean? Let me give a quick example. Uh, malaria. So a lot of environmentalists, the Pope, the UN... Uh, talk about how rising temperatures uh, uh, means that mosquitoes have traveled to different parts of the earth and they're infecting uh, new people with malaria. So, of course, the conclusion of that is we all have to stop driving cars so that the global temperature goes down. And the Kyoto Protocol says that if we spent $180 billion a year, $180 billion, then we could prevent 1,400 malaria deaths. Now, Bjorn Lomborg has come out and said, well, hold on, $180 billion. If we spent $500 million on anti-malaria projects, we could save 300,000 lives. So think about it. We could spend $180 billion a year and all become poorer and prevent 1,400 people from getting malaria. Or we could spend a fraction of that and save 300,000 lives. Well, what's the difference? Well, we can go the, the one view, which is where we're going to change every behavior and we're going to lower the temperature of the planet to prevent the mosquitoes from traveling to different areas and spreading malaria. Or we can improve the economies of Africa so that they have houses and clean water and medicine. See what I'm saying? Surviving the planet. Hurricanes are another example. By the way, we're 10 years and counting now. Longest drought on record where we haven't had a severe hurricane in America. But hurricanes in America aren't that big of a deal anymore. If a hurricane hits Florida, maybe a few people die. Maybe. When a hurricane hits Haiti, thousands of people die and the country's devastated for years. So should we stop driving cars so that the planet can be at its ideal temperature to prevent major storms from hitting? Or should we improve the economies of the third world so that they can withstand a hurricane? Just like the people in Florida can. See the difference there? That's a world of a difference. I don't think we should try and change the temperature of the planet. That seems very expensive and very foolish. Because it's impossible. The Earth's everything from mountains to glaciers has always been changing. We need to work to survive those changes. Not to prevent them. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. I got a few minutes here. We'll uh, chat about Denmark coming up next because keep hearing people talk about Denmark like like we should be more like Denmark all of a sudden. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know where Denmark came from, but all right. Uh, so we'll, we'll chat about what life in Denmark's really like. Um, but one last point on uh, environmentalism here. We've talked a lot on this show, and I, I don't want to beat a uh, this dead horse here, but I came across something the other day which I think is fantastic. So we, we make the point often that we are not running out of natural resources. We're not. Um, for decades, people, centuries, uh, people have said we're running out of things. Uh, we never have, we never will, because the most important resource is human ingenuity. And we always come up with new ways to get raw materials or uh, we invent new ways to do the, this old thing. So, so, so like uh, where there was a shortage of whale blubber for candles, we invented electricity. Uh, where there was a shortage of copper for telephone wires, we invented fiber optic cables, which use sand, or made of sand, right? Where aluminum used to be the most precious metal in the world, Louis XIV had bars of aluminum. His, his finest guests would use alu- aluminum forks and knives, and his second-rate guests would use gold forks and knives. And now we all have aluminum foil in our kitchen. Why? Because we, intend- we, we invented new ways to mine aluminum, which is incredibly prevalent, uh, just really hard to get out of the ground. So we figured out a way to do it, and now aluminum is all over the place. So anyway, the trendy thing to worry about today is that we're going to run out of oil. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we will never run out of oil. Never. First of all, there's a stash of oil in Colorado that's larger than all of the current oil reserves in the world combined. And the reason we don't use it is because it's expensive to get to it now. But as technology improves, we'll find a way and we'll get it. But I don't even think we'll need that oil, and here's why. We're going to become so much more efficient in everything. So Boeing just released a video where they're showing off the lightest metal ever. They call it micro-lattice. The design is called micro-lattice, and it's mirrored after your bones, which are rigid on the outside but essentially hollow on the inside. And it's the same with this metal. It's 99% air. But the way that the the metal is, is structured in this lattice structure makes it super strong so it's so light it's incredibly light and crazy strong and the hope is that that these car that uh, they can use this metal to make cars and airplanes and let's just do airplanes airplanes will be infinitely lighter and it will take a fraction of the current fuel it takes to move them right now 61 percent of our oil use is used for transportation 61%. 61%. Imagine if that drops down to 10%, right? We'll, we're, we'll be using less oil to accomplish the same task, and that is the definition of efficiency. And the only way that this is possible, the only reason this is possible is because of human ingenuity. Because man is left free. Notice Boeing invented this. They didn't invent this in Iran. They didn't invent this in uh, North Korea. They invented it here in America. Because here, humans' minds are left free. And if that resource is left free then there's nothing we can't overcome. I truly believe that. And I, I forgot to mention how light this was. I'm sorry. They took a uh, piece of this metal, it's like an inch by an inch, and they put it on top of a uh, a dandelion fluff or whatever. You know, like when, you know when a dandelion turns white and you just you blow it and it blows out, the seeds blow all over the place? 
they put this medal on top of a dandelion. The white part of the dandelion is just sitting on top of it. And it doesn't break. And I don't even know what's more impressive, the fact that the white seeds don't fly off or the fact that the like the dandelion stem itself doesn't bend over. But they can put this metal just on top. And it's stronger than any other metal. And it weighs almost nothing. You can put it on top of a dandelion. <laughs> That's incredible. Human ingenuity is the answer. And we'll never run out of oil. And any of the other doomsday scenarios that they lay out there... Um, they won't they won't happen. Not if we're left free. We got about a minute left. I want to go to Brian in Chi Town. Brian, I hate to leave you with such little time. We don't have time to talk about the cubbies, but uh what's on your mind? Hi, uh yeah, I've been listening to you for a couple hours or so. And uh you were talking I called back when you were talking about Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And uh just an observation I've had and I've brought this up with some of my friends is imagine if North and South America wouldn't have been there. Imagine what the course of uh European history would have been. Uh you know. I think there is a limit to population growth on the on the globe. I, I'm with you as far as your human ingenuity and developing new technologies. That will occur. I do not doubt that. But the rapid growth of the human population, I mean, we've doubled the Earth's population in 50 years. Now, was it technology that allowed that to happen? I think it was. Uh, I forgot the German scientist's name, but the, there were some German scientists back in around 1900 that developed the technology to pull nitrogen out of the air and produce ammonia to put it into our crops to double the production of our agriculture. And I hate also- Brian. Brian, I hate I got to cut you off, brother. I hate this. Actually, can, if you can hang on, we'll chat more after the break. Um, there's a lot of scientists, a lot of great thinkers today saying the biggest population in the future is not enough population growth. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Hey, Slater Crusaders. I want to go right back to Brian here in Chicago. Brian, I apologize for cutting you off there. I got to hit the bottom of the hour at a a hard second. Um, Let's keep chatting, though, man. Um, So you said you you consider overpopulation to be a problem. Uh, Explain more. Why do you think that's a problem? Uh, Feeding all the people and the pollution. You've admitted pollution is a problem. You say it's not global warming, it's pollution. And I, I said agree. they're oh, I, I said they're different, but pollution is a problem, is it not? Uh, it's nothing that can't be solved. With it's technology. not a problem that can't be solved. Yes, right. And then I mean, I just wanted to comment mainly about human competition, and you know, the ultimate competition is warfare, and slavery is a result of warfare. One people conquers another, then they put the conquered people to use. That's called mm-hmm. slavery. And everybody's done it for eons, and it's not just an American thing. I mean, I I know my history. Um, But, I mean, I really don't know where I want to go with this other than to say that, you know, human competition ultimately has been war for thousands of years. Now, where we go in the future, I mean, warfare is extremely lethal now. Mm. There's no doubt about it. We can, you know, wipe each other out. Uh, And and it'll be very very different moving forward as well. right now we're at seven plus billion people on the planet and in a few 50 years we're going to be close to 10 billion people on the planet what are 10 billion people going to do to be productive that's something i think about 
And how are you going to feed 10 billion people? I mean, is everybody on planet Earth going to acquire an American lifestyle? I highly doubt it. Uh, you know, if you, if you really are honest, I think our economy, the American lifestyle, is dependent upon low-skill, low-wage labor all over the globe. That's what gives us our very cheap products. And, uh, you know, we, we live in very interesting times. And I think most Americans are just completely oblivious to it. And that's really all I wanted to say. Yeah. I mean, no, bro, no, Brian, always uh, good points, man. Good things to think about. And I appreciate the call very much. Um, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball for the future. Um, all I can say is, if we have seven billion people now, and you're concerned about um, ten billion, or eleven billion, or twelve billion, thirteen, whatever, uh, the when there were one billion people on the planet, they were concerned about two billion. And when they were two billion, they were concerned about three billion, and three billion, four billion, four billion, five billion, five billion, six billion, seven billion, seven billion, and now seven billion is worried about eight billion, and then and now here we are, um, and there's more food now available um, than ever, and we can feed far more people than there are on the planet right now. The problem with feeding people now is not a can we grow enough problem; it's a can we distribute it, distribute it, distribute it efficiently enough problem. And the reason that there's people, poor people in Africa isn't because we don't have food for them. It's because mostly they have horrible dictators as their leaders who don't let these people eat. And when we give aid to these countries, the, the leaders take it and don't give it to the people. So it's mostly a distribution problem, not a do we have enough farmland problem. Because we are so much more efficient in everything we do. And things are only going to get monumentally more efficient. In ways that we can't even fathom. And I think when we, we talked about the um, uh, Michael Crichton speech at Caltech in 2003, Michael Crichton, an absolutely brilliant man. He said, if you were in 1900, nothing that exists today you would have been aware of or even could have had a comprehension of. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like Nothing. <laughs> in, in any way at all. I mean, I, I was Skyping this morning with my uh, brother and, and my one-year-old nephew in London. Like, I could see them. They, my nephew just started walking. I saw him walk for the first time, or the first time I got to see him walk. It's like, it's like <laughs> how's that possible? So, so I, I share that because who are we to have, to have any concept of what it's going to look like in the year 2100? And I think we can all agree that life is better in the year 2000 than it is 1900 in pretty much every way. Just go to a hospital today versus what a hospital would look like in 1900. Uh, so why would you? Why do people think that the year 2100 is going to be so much worse than the year 2000? Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like why the doomsday scenario? Why? Why is life going to be horrible then? Why are we going to run out of food? Why is warfare going to result in everyone dying? Which, by the way, warfare is way down. Way, way, way down. Um, maybe I can pull that list up here during the break here. But um, I mean, there's the number of people and the number of wars is far lower than any time in human history. So I don't know. I just I, I don't see the doomsday. I share this example all the time. In 1900, uh, scientists got together, scientists and city planners and politicians got together and said, listen, New York City can't grow anymore. Um, cities can't grow. 
and the you know the size of New York City was uh, you know two hundred thousand people or something. And like, ah, we can't get any bigger. We're stuck. This is as big as it can be because horses and all the horse poop. And we get around by horses. And we have no place else to put the horse poop. I'm not even kidding. Horse poop would be feet deep in the middle of the street. And there's no place else to put the horse poop. So we can only have X number of people because those people need X number of horses. And we only have so much room for all the horse poop. I'm not even kidding. That was 1900. A couple years later, they invented the car. And now there's no more horses in New York City unless you want to take a little carriage ride around Central Park. Horse poop, no longer a problem. No one would have thought that was a possibility in the year 1900. Cars? Like, no one thought of that until someone did. So there's always been doomsdayers. Always, always, always. I don't subscribe to that. I don't, uh, I don't see it. And pollution being a problem? Yeah, it's a problem, but it's a solvable problem. It's a solvable problem. We just need people to be free. That's the key. That's the absolute key. We need people to be free. We need free economies. We need uh, wealthier uh, economies. We need people uh, to be free to try, people to be free to fail in their endeavors. Uh, we need capital to be free to move. We need people to be able to freely spend their money. We need people to be freely uh, free to invest their money. And ideally, if we had the government not taking uh, a lot of it, uh, then uh, there'd be more to... Uh, for people to spend. And I don't just mean spend on like consumer goods. I mean, invest venture capital, stuff like that. And then we can come up with these new technologies and we can get there faster. So anywho, Brian, thank you for the call, man. I hope that answers, uh, answers a little bit. Um, actually this ties in nicely. Let me just, I want to cut to the chase with, with Denmark. So I keep hearing Denmark a lot last two weeks. Bernie Sanders talks about Denmark a lot. Like we need to be more like Denmark. I'm like, why? Why, why, why do you want to be more like Denmark? So I want to make two points. I'll do the first one really, really fast. You cannot have a massive welfare state like Denmark without taxing the middle class. So in America, the top tax bracket's 35%. And then here in California, you have another 10% state income tax. When I used to live in Tennessee, it was a 0% income tax and a lower, population, uh, lower uh, sales tax than uh, here in California. But I digress. So California, if you live in California and you're rich, um, 45% income tax. 45% income tax. That kicks in if you make $400,000 a year or more. So if you make over $400,000 a year, 45% of your money is taken in income taxes. In Denmark, the top tax rate is 60%. So it's higher, 60%. But that's for everyone who makes over 50 grand. $50,000 and you're taxed 60%. Now I talked about this on my local show the other day and we had a Dane call in and he said, Slater, it's worse than that. You want to buy a car? There's a 200% tax on top of that. They have a value added tax there. So the sales tax, not even a sales tax, it's worse than that. It's a value added tax on every single thing you buy. It is expensive. It is expensive to live in uh, Denmark and other democratic socialist countries like that. And who is it expensive for? People in the middle class. So is that what you want? Is that what everyone wants? All these progressives, all these people who feel the burn for Bernie Sanders, is that what you want? You want you want your income tax, if you make over $50,000 a year, you want your income tax to go up 60%? For you, not the rich, for you. Of course you don't want that. But that's what's going to happen. But here's the, the worst part. Someone called into my local show the other day and said, Slater, 
um, you know, I'm with you. You know, socialism will never work in America. We're too big. And I said, all right, well, hold on now. Watch out for statements like that. Because if you say America's too big for socialism to work, that implies that socialism would work in smaller countries. But I don't think that's true either. I want to look past the economic consequences of socialism. That's just one glaring problem with socialism. Economic inefficiencies, poverty, all the rest. I think the biggest problem with socialism is what it does to a person's psyche. What it does to their psyche, their soul, their spirit, their dignity. And I know that's a lot. It's dramatic. But I think that's the worst part about socialism is what it does to individual people, what it does to you and your soul. I had another email from, uh, from a listener who is from Denmark, and this is what he wrote me yesterday. He said, Danish people are by and large label. Label is such a good word. Um, let me get a good definition here. Let me Let's see. Label. Uh, easily altered. Easily altered, easily broken down, easily displaced. Uh, Sure, they are many wonderful, loving, and nice people. But they are walking through life with glazed eyes. The human spirit has been robbed of incentive. The key for Euro-socialist governments like Denmark's is to ensure that the church are put into the corner of a nice tradition. Europeans are highly arrogant and prize their precious socialism as the trophy of their superior cultures. And they have hardened hearts and there is no spirit in them. All right, so that's one person's opinion. That's a little dramatic, too. I don't believe you. I want to read this quote here. This is from uh, two popes ago. Two popes ago. Uh, And we talked about this a few weeks ago when uh, I talked with Stephen Moore, economist from uh, Wall Street Journal, or formerly on the Wall Street Journal editorial board. And we were talking about the pope's visit and how our current pope's socialist tendencies. And we read some quotes from the last four popes who were all vehemently against socialism, but not for economic factors. No, no social, no Pope ever stood up and said, well, I'm against socialism because tax rates are too high. This Pope said socialism considers the individual person simply as an element, a molecule within the social organism. So that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the functioning of the socioeconomic mechanism. A person who is deprived of something he can call his own and of the possibility of earning a living through his own initiative comes to depend on the social machine and on those who control it. This makes it much more difficult for him to recognize, for you, let me change it. It makes it much more difficult for you to recognize your dignity as a person. Your dignity as a person and hinders progress towards building up of an authentic human community. So that call, uh, the listener I had the other day, the email, agrees with the Pope here too. And the effect of socialism that has on you as an individual robs you of your incentive, robs you of your dignity. So I bring this back to Brian, who's concerned about overpopulation and all the rest. All those doomsday concerns you have absolutely will come true. If we move closer and closer towards this democratic socialist model. But I guarantee you that the opposite of them, opposite of your predictions will come true. If we get back 
to our capitalist system and our capitalist mentality and capitalist incentive. Because then we will have true innovation and all of these problems will be resolved as they've been the last couple hundred years. one 933 I got to take a break. I'll come back with one more story from Denmark uh, just to prove this point even more. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. We have to talk about Denmark, but um, we can talk about the effect that socialism has on the people who are paying for it, <laughs> right? Which will be the middle class. It is the middle class. Um, but I'd rather talk about the effect of socialism on the people who are receiving said money. So the New York Times... Two, three years ago, wrote a story of Karina. She's a 36-year-old single mother, uh, and she was getting more money in welfare than many full-time workers. She was getting $2,700 a month, and she's been getting that welfare since she was 16. I'll quote from the New York Times. They said, they, uh, the people of Denmark, were deeply engaged in a debate about whether their beloved welfare state had become too rich, undermining the country's work ethic. Denmark has been able to uh, has, has been at work overhauling entitlements, trying to prod Danes into working more or longer or both. That amazing people have been working their entire life, and only socialism, uh, socialist countries and philosophies can uh, remove people's incentive to work, and then have to come up with new incentives to try to get them to work again. It's unbelievable. So now this article in the New York Times isn't about abuses of the welfare state. It's about a systematic destruction of something that I believe is is necessary in life, and that is meaningful work. So we got it wrong, but the point is, is that the country we want? Do we really want to be more like Denmark? Populist progressives love it. More likely, they love the idea of it, which is very different than the reality of it. Mike Slater Show on Facebook, Slater Radio on Twitter. Slater Crusaders, we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.